0: Hey, folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have an interview with Dustin Messer. Dr. Lightheart will introduce Dustin in just a moment. And in this conversation, they'll be talking about his recent doctoral work on microchristendoms and cultural renewal in neighborhoods. We're also glad to be joined in this episode by our friend Richard Bledsoe, who has done a lot of work on cities and neighborhoods. We wanna let you know that we are starting to release Psalm Chants on Apple Music and on Spotify. So on those platforms, if you just search for Theopolis, you should find us there. We have Psalms two and three up currently, and we will be adding more and more in the future. We hope that you enjoy this discussion, and we wanna thank you so much for listening. And here's an interview with Dustin Messer, with Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and Rich Bledsoe.
1: Welcome to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and Jeff Myers. And today we have a special guest, Dustin Messer. Dustin is the pastor for Faith Formation at All Saints Dallas a Church in the Anglican Mission, uh, and he'll be uh, telling us about his uh, recently completed doctoral dissertation, which he completed at LaSalle University. We're taking a, a break from our uh, series in the book of Daniel. James B. John is, uh, is busy with the uh, a uh, Theopolis workshop teaching on judges. And so he asked to take a break from the podcast. We didn't feel like we could go on with the podcast in Daniel without James. And so we're filling in until he's able to come back in a few weeks. And uh, we're really glad to have Dustin with us today to talk about his doctoral dissertation. We hope to have uh, Rich Bledsoe join us eventually. Uh, Rich has done a lot of work that is relevant to what Dustin will be talking about. So we hope that he can pop on to the podcast a little bit later. Uh, Dustin, first of all, why don't you just uh, introduce yourself a little bit more in a little more detail. And tell us about what your work is there at All Saints and other things that you're involved in.
2: Yeah, thanks, Peter. I, uh, As you said, I'm a pastor at All Saints Dallas. We're a church right in the center of uh, downtown Dallas, and I lead our catechesis from kids ministry to adult ed. We have a pretty vib- vibrant Alpha program here that I lead as well. Um, as you said, I just finished my doctorate. I uh, was really interested in sort of the intersection of sociology and theology, that kind of thing I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, and your work specifically against Christianity was really helpful as I was thinking through um, the sort of questions I wanted to ask in the process. I write for several organizations. Um I have something relevant to this topic at the Gospel Coalition, probably by the time uh, this is up, kind of reflecting on Jane Jacobs, who played pretty prominently in my dissertation. Um, so yeah, I do that sort of thing. And uh, i married to Whitney, and we are expecting our first child.
1: Ah, congratulations on that. Uh, why don't you, I, I want to return to the Jane Jacobs uh, topic, because I know that's, uh, I hope Rich will be with us by then, because that's something that he's very interested in. But maybe you can give us a brief uh, summary of what the dissertation was about. You said it's an intersection of sociology and theology. What uh, what particularly were you looking at?
2: Yeah, it was really. It came out of sort of two realizations I had. One was the way nations change is unpredictable. It's not that individuals can't change the course of nations; they can, but it's often the case that we don't know how we will change. Um, a nation. Like if you look at teen pregnancy rates, for instance, um, there's a dramatic spike um, and that spike doesn't have to do with some sort of libertine philosophy or anything like that. It has to do with the invention of the car. And, you know, Henry Ford isn't thinking to himself, I really want to increase teen pregnancy rates, but it just changes. And the highway system changes our dietary habits. Um, it's sort of just elusive how how nations change, and then the other realization I had throughout the the program was uh, how much neighborhoods still really do affect those who live in the neighborhoods, and actually how malleable they are, how transformable they are, and it just struck me as I read the Bible and saw that um, faith doesn't just affect our church life, but affects our whole life as people. We are called to apply scripture, not just in our churchy world, but to, you know, the way we treat people who work for us, our neighbors. Um, Scripture isn't just a word to the church. It's a word to uh, everyone in the whole world. And so we are called to uh, change things. We're called to make the naked clothed. We're called to make the hungry fed. Um, and so, uh, how do we go about changing things? Well, if we just want to change sort of national politics and sort of an old school moral majority style politicking, uh, we could do that. You know, I don't think it's a sin to be involved in national politics or anything, uh, but there may be a more fruitful Avenue, which is engaging in and transforming local institutions, which it turns out is just super possible. we can get into the sociology behind it, but it really is possible for a relatively few amount of people to have a huge impact on the local institutions and neighborhoods. And that gave me great hope. And so those were the sort of things I explored.
1: Yeah, thanks. Uh, Thanks, Dustin. I I see that Rich uh, Bledsoe has joined us. I'm glad that uh, he made it through the gauntlet of technical challenges and is uh, going to be able to contribute to our conversation today. One thing I want to pick up on from your summary there, Dustin, was uh, just ex- expound on what you were saying about the automobile as the as a factor in the in- increase in teen pregnancy rates. And I, I guess what I, part of what I'm thinking, I mean, the, you got an obvious there's an obvious uh, link there because you have people who are you've got young people who are now mobile in ways that they hadn't been mobile before. They can escape the scrutiny of neighbors and and parents and so and so forth. But how does that fit? You're not offering a kind of technological determinism here that automobiles. Um, open up, it's, it's opened up an opportunity, but how does that, how does that work in with a kind of a, a change in the kind of the values of, of the culture?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I guess that statistic to me just offered a little bit of humility that the intent behind the culture making we're doing often becomes irrelevant in a very, very short amount of time meaning someone can have the intent to, you know, make life easier, make transportation possible and so forth. And yet it has this unintended consequence. And as you look at kind of, you know, American national politics over the last hundred years, um, it would be, you'd be really hard pressed to see sort of a through line of intentionality Meaning, there are all sorts of unintended consequences, just surprise things of chance, you know, um, that uh, that change the course of a nation. So what I wanted to say was, you know, I think they're really honest, good people who are trying to be faithful to Christ, and they read in Scripture, we're called to um, transform the world. We're not called to keep our faith private. We're called to this public. Outworking of our faith, and I think there's just kind of an honest, you know, uh, view that says, "Well, therefore, I'm gonna, you know, get some voter guides, and I'm gonna vote on these issues, and I'm going to take back Washington D.C., and then everything will be set right." I'm not saying voting doesn't matter or anything like that. What I am saying is, the intentionality doesn't necessarily cause the effect on at a national level. Now. At the local level, however, if we can channel and harness that intentionality to live out our faith in a public way, we really can. uh, There's a greater through line between our intentionality and the net result of our neighborhoods. We really can transform HOAs. We really can uh, make our citizens uh, with whom we live safer and healthier. And so I guess statistics like that between the automobile and teen pregnancy are just humbling to us that uh, in terms of how the world shifts, there is divine intention. God knows. He knows how Henry Ford's intentions will eventually result in this or that. But we just have a hard time knowing. Therefore, we can't put all of our eggs in national politics basket because you elect one president, and there's a reaction, another president is elected, God knows, but there really are practical, small things we can do at the local level to build microchristendoms. Not that I would be happy for, uh, for the project to end with microchristendoms. Uh, God, I think, can knit this fabric together of faithfulness into something larger, into the discipling of, of whole nations. But just on a practical level, I hope uh, my work would encourage people to not uh, neglect national politics, uh, not at all. I think it's important, but to harness the energy of their public theology at the local level where their intentionality and their effort really can make a huge difference.
3: Dustin, um, how is your vision or your research related to, um, say, uh, Belloc and Chesterton's distributism, because it sounds similar to that, but yet that's a kind of full-blown economic theory. Uh, have you thought about that?
2: Yeah, not a lot in in the project per se. I do quote Chesterton to some degree and work with him a little bit, but not in distributism specifically. I think what Chesterton was helpful for me was, you know, there's this great place where he talks about the way in which one can have a full orbed worldview or, or maybe become worldly, is actually by devoting yourself to the particularities of a locality. And the reason he says it is, if you live in a big city, and you become kind of a cosmopolitan, it's easy to self select those with whom you identify, so that you do become kind of, you know, uh, a niche consumer of culture, whereas if you live in a small place, you have, he calls, the fierce varieties of men at your uh, at your fingertips. You understand really the the different uh, personalities, uh, different ages, certainly of uh, of mankind. And so Chesterton's helpful there. I haven't really dealt a lot uh, with that economic theory or anything like that in the dissertation.
4: You mentioned the automobile earlier. And it seems to me that many of the issues that we face with community nowadays have to do with the changing structures within which we form and conceive of communities. And many of the great technologies that have influenced that, again, are not things that were specifically designed to change the way that we have communities, but they powerfully shift the salience of locality, of, um, I, of community, things like that. So if you think about the invention of the internet, no one really foresaw the way that that would shape the sorts of communities that we have. We maybe had some um, senses of where it might go. But what it means to have a local community when you don't even know what the most formative communities your own children could be involved in, it raises certain questions, I think, about the, the degree to which we can engage in that practice without thinking about the larger structures of the degree to which we invest and allow ourselves access to these larger structures, whether that's a society built around the car, uh, an older form, or the newer form of the internet, and the degree to which we're actually creatively considering what it might be, what it might look like to develop those sorts of networks ourselves, to create structures that our non-local communities, but in our modern world, these can be some of the most powerful and formative people?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I guess the way I would want to think about it is there's a sociologist named Robert Dunkelman who talks about inner rings, outer rings, and middle rings of life. Inner rings are your nuclear family. So we still have those. And in fact, he uh, points the data that says, I mean, we're actually spending more time with our nuclear family, not less than, say, 30 years ago, which is kind of surprising not to say the breakup of the home isn't happening. It is, but it's just a little bit more complicated because uh, we also have these outer rings. Outer rings, he says, are the things to which social media pull us to. They're fandoms, like being uh, a Trekkie if you're in the Star Trek uh, universe or Um, being, you know, in this or that political party, that kind of thing. They're these sort of uh, communities of people who we will never meet, and it would be impossible for us to have uh, dinner with. Middle rings are, you know, you can think of Edmund Burke talks about little platoons, or when Tocqueville comes to America, he sees these voluntary associations. John Richard Newhouse talks a lot about this. It's what gives America sort of its identity, which is, um, it's beyond the family. It's not an inner ring, but it's also not just kind of a fandom to which you ascribed to or a political party to which you ascribe to. These local institutions, these middle rings are Lions Club, uh, their churches, um, they're HOAs, and they involve people who think differently than us, uh, look differently than us. Um, they involve localities. And I guess what I would say is you're exactly right. we are being pulled towards these outer rings uh, by technology. However, um, that does not mean that our localities stop affecting us. In other words, I do think they're taking our attention. I am dubious about our ability to really transform sort of online digital communities. Maybe it's possible. It could be. I'm kind of dubious of it. Um, But as we're trying to do that, with greater or lesser um, degree of effectiveness. What we're not doing is investing in our middle rings. And that's Dunkelman's sort of whole project shows that the reason we're spending more time with our nuclear family um, is because that middle ring is being so neglected. Um, And it's kind of intuitive. You know, if you uh, were to uh, have a neighbor who wasn't mowing their lawn, I think all of us know we could report the person, you know, if you have some sort of code against that. Or you could go introduce yourself to them. And if you introduce yourself to your neighbor, they're much more likely to keep their lawn sort of uh, neat and tidy. Um, and so, and, and, you know, there's something called the broken window theory, which just says in a neighborhood, uh, order breeds order, disorder breeds disorder. There are ways we could critique the broken window theory, but the, that larger point, order breeding order is exactly right. So if we're spending a lot of time in these outer ring social networks, neglecting that middle ring. Um, I think our, our, our lives will be uh, thinner. Our community will be thinner. And uh, more than that, our place will lack our light. I think it's a way to sort of hide our, our light under, uh, under a bushel in a way.
1: You mentioned uh, Jane Jacobs as a as an influence on the work that you did. Uh, and I was wondering, how how did you use Jacob's work? For Maybe you could summarize some of the things that Jacob's is known for, but I, uh, Rich has spent a lot of time studying studying her work.
2: Yeah, well, Jane Jacobs is a fascinating person whose faith life is uh, is complex and, and interesting. I would say the broad strokes are, um, uh, Jane Jacobs studied the way in which neighborhoods worked, And was critical of the New Deal, lots of different things, but was critical generally of the idea that a dispassionate, uh, removed from the situation, city planner could come in and know best how a city should be run over and against um, the local citizens. So sort of the classic Jane Jacobs example is, you know, city planners would come in and they'd say, well, uh, there are schools in this area, let's triangulate uh, a location where a park should go such that it's equidistant between each school. And it's sort of the logical place that a park should go. And Jacobs noticed as city planners did this, they'd put the park in this place. The park would go unused, though it might be logical that a park should go there. And what she said is, if city planners really want to help cities, what they'll do is they'll, they'll come into a locality, and they'll have sort of just an epistemological humility to say, that uh, the citizens, um, you know, they're, they're not dumb and they don't really need the help of some bureaucrat. And so what, what a city planner might do is look for what, like, empty lot are the kids playing baseball in, you know. Um, and then you can put grass in the lot, you build a fence around it, you can make it safer. I mean, you can buttress the life that's happening. Um, but if you're deferential to the city, if you really study the city, the neighborhoods in themselves... And work around, it's not that you just leave it and say, well, there's, there's no way it can be improved. But if you say, I'm going to buttress the life that is, that is there, the spontaneous order, um, you'll have far greater, um, far greater results. And so uh, Jacobs is, is very helpful for, to me, actually, as a pastor. is I, you know, uh, after seminary, I mean, came into my first uh, church work and had all of these ideas and plans, you know, well, you should come to this Bible study at this time and so forth. And I kept being frustrated. Why aren't people rallying to my amazing plans? Uh, And then I reread Jacobs and I thought, you know, I should really look for who are the group of men having breakfast together and how can I really support that and get them to invite younger men or like what, you know, basketball league do a lot of our folks go to and how can I support that? Jacobs gave me sort of an epistemological humility to say, um, you know, the planner is uh, oftentimes more full of uh, hubris than hope and we should be deferential to the spontaneous order in a church, of course. uh, We recognize the Spirit's work and um, we want to partner with uh, the life that's already happening. So that's how Jacobs at least was helpful to me.
5: Jane Jacobs, uh, she was this woman who just sat in her living room and she watched how she lived in Greenwich Village. And she's the person responsible for stopping the great Robert Moses, who was running super highways through all of the neighborhoods of New York in order to achieve his Tower of Babel plans. And she's the one who stopped him. He was going to destroy Greenwich Village. But yeah, she she would look at neighborhoods and she it was interesting, it was amazing to her, wonderful to her that Neighborhoods were spontaneously self ordering, and you should Mm -hmm. not destroy that and think you're doing something wonderful. There may be a, I mean, I remember one example she gives uh, is a local hardware store, uh, and she's very much for mixed usage. So we have all these apartments around and there was a local hardware store. And by golly, everybody congregated at the hardware store and talked and they trusted the owner of the hardware store. And when they left town, they would leave their key with him in case, because maybe the relative was coming or something and they could pick it up there. But she noticed all of these things, which of course, the great central planners just sneered at <laughs> she mm. noticed everything everybody else sneered at and so this is how cities really work yeah it's also it's it's interesting just fascinating to me that the uh, kind of high-powered Austrian economic people the Hayekians and the misesians they say you know Jane Jacobs is one of us she's mm. actually Mises with uh, shoe leather She's actually saying everything economically that we are, except it's from the ground.
1: So, Dustin, uh, as far as um, like uh, ministry in neighborhoods, it sounds like the the lesson of that is you you try to work with the grain of the neighborhood. So, yep. not not just in city planning or organizing parks or something, but if you're in a church in an area, then you want to that which requires in-depth study of what's actually already happening there.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. There's an ancient practice called beating of the bounds. Um, I'm sure Alistair will be familiar with in England. It was a way for the parish priest to um, to know his community and teach sort of that. I mean, the way it would work practically is there'd be a, a stick. The priest would walk the bounds of his parish, and as he would come to, you know, uh, Mrs. Smith's uh, lake, he would uh, hit the kid with the the stick and say, "That's that's the lake." It was a very tactile way of learning. I'm generally just to be on the record against randomly beating kids with sticks, but <laughs> it was a pra- it was a practice that solidified. This is our neighborhood. This is our parish. These are the lines. These are the borders. Uh, we uh, have done it here in Dallas as a church uh, previously, and we would do beatings of the bounds every year, and we'd have a little stick and. Uh, It wouldn't just be laying out the bounds of this is this street. This is that street. But we would learn, you know, this is Mrs. Smith and she doesn't have a washing machine. And in Dallas, it's quite humid and her clothes smell like mildew and she's trying to get a job. Um, And as she's going to these jobs, she smells bad. And so how can we help her either get a new washing machine or maybe we can do laundry for her twice a month. And so I still think it's really helpful for pastors, even if you don't do an official beating of the bounds ceremony uh, or anything, to go out in your neighborhood and say, What are the signs of order and what are the signs of disorder? The critique of the broken window theory is, you know, well, um, uh, cultures uh, express order and disorder differently. In other words, if you go to around that in Dallas, North Dallas, and you saw a lawn that had a car on it and parts everywhere, that would be a sign of disorder for that community. But maybe you go to South Dallas and You see someone who has a car on their lawn and there are parts everywhere. Someone's working on their car. It's a sign of uh, thrift and industriousness, and that's actually a sign of order. And so I get that. You have to be sensitive to, you know, there are sort of norms in a community. Um, But generally speaking, if you can really know your place uh, well um, and you can see those signs of order and disorder, the church can be quite effective, I think. At buttressing the order and not just coming in with some centralized plan to redeem the city, quote unquote, um, and we're going to impose it upon you. We can just sort of have the humility to see uh, where order can be promoted and where disorder can be abated. And of course, as Christians, I mean, the title of my dissertation is Micro Christendom's Cultural Renewal on a Human Scale. As Christians, of course, I think this isn't just some, you know, Platonic view of, of order. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about the Christian view. Uh, of order. We're bringing the gospel uh, to a place. We're getting our sort of marching orders from, uh, from scripture, and we're applying it humbly, of course, uh, but we're applying it in a very public way.
4: I suspect one of the issues that we increasingly face in the modern world is the fact that we have an uprooted and um, migratory elite And so the homegrown elites that would have been in the community in the past have increasingly been sapped away from those communities, sent to professional institutions and universities, trained there and then scattered all over the place. They have more of an affiliation with people of their own new class than they do with the places that they live or the places that they came from. And I wonder how first of all, whether you agree with that, and then more generally, how the church can speak and act within the space where there has been that particular social breakdown, if there has been such a breakdown.
2: well, that's such a a astute observation. Um, There's a great book by, I think, one of the best sort of religious journalists writing now, uh, Tim Carney, Uh, he wrote a book called Alienated America. Um, Here's a fascinating uh, sort of observation he made. He would go to places, and um, uh, looking for disorder, community breakdown, he was really looking at why populism circa 2016 was such a thing. Why were people so alienated, resentful towards the elite, and so forth? Um, what he found was the elite have uh, are doing pretty well with community. Um, They have traveling sports leagues they send their kids to. They have yoga classes on Sunday. They brunch together. Um, They have real, deep, thick community. Um, The non-elites in a place uh, used to have an institution which would bind them, and it was the church, Um, this uh, free institution that really gave coherence and cohesion Um, To a place. And so what he observed was that this sort of fracturing of institutions, us being pulled again to outer rings um, and inner rings, but missing this middle ring is hurting uh, the poor uh, more than it's hurting anybody. And so he sort of uh, one of the the great observation he made is populist candidates did much more poorly in Utah, um, some counties in Michigan, some counties in Iowa. What he knew about that was that in Utah, you had a thick church life, Mormon life, right? I mean, uh, a cultist church, but still a thick um, intermediate institution. In Iowa, in Michigan, you have these Dutch Reformed communities, which really do still have vibrant church life. I'm sure y'all have visited um, some of those old Dutch churches. I was at Seventh Reformed Church in in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, It's amazing, actually how thick and robust of a Dutch community is still there. Those people, though they were not elites um, uh, in these places, Iowa, Michigan, where church life was still thick, where people still attended church and belonged to the church, they would not vote for populist candidates in the same way. I mean, it's it's you can look at the election map in, in 2016 and see the populist candidates, how poorly they did in places where church attendance was strong. So. As I think, the church has a unique role to play. Um, You know, Jesus didn't give the keys to the kingdom to the Lions Club uh, or to HOAs. He gave it to the church. And the church being the church, uh, I think will make communities better generally. But the specific community who it will help are those who don't brunch and don't have yoga clubs. Um, It will be the non-elite. And so I think that's a really important observation that uh, a lot of times people associate Christendom projects with currying favor uh, among the powerful. I think it's quite the opposite, actually. A Christendom project will be serving uh, the least of these, um, uh, at least in my mind.
3: Dustin, that that was fascinating, your uh, explanation, dear, a few minutes ago. How does that um, conf- uh, either uh, conflict with or sit with like james David Hunter's to change the world you know eleven years ago published this book, and he critiqued uh, the whole uh bottom up kind of transformation of of society of uh you know grassroots kind of stuff change everybody's worldview and you know and and it'll, it'll go from bottom to top and and argued that most social transformations happen from the top down with um with a change of leadership?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I delivered a paper with this theme at uh, the Center for Cultural Leadership, I don't know, I guess kind of at the beginning of, of my research, and David Bonson, someone y'all, y'all I'm sure all know, uh, a Christian economist and sort of wealth advisor and so forth, was there. And uh, after I delivered the paper, he asked that exact question I can't remember how I answered it, but I remember he disagreed with how I answered it. And uh, he said, you know, I I agree with everything he said. He said, however, um, uh, this doesn't have to be an either or. In other words, I don't think this has to be a top down or bottom up. It's not that we have to say do this instead of that. Um, Instead, I think Hunter has a point that uh, institutions say he's talking about elite institutions, I think just institutions generally really do have a formative effect of providing plausibility structures um, such that uh, you know, if, uh, if your boss at work is really hostile to your faith, you're not likely to be seen in prayer at lunch. Whereas if your boss um, is a person of faith, so that could be the elite in your institution That gives um, a plausibility structure, it gives cover, it gives sort of excuse for you to say a quiet, humble prayer at lunch or to tell someone you're praying for them or something like that, have a Bible study perhaps beforehand. And so um, monocausal diagnoses or prescriptions always sort of strike me as a little artificial. Uh, I I think we want to do both. We want to be faithful um, to where God has, has placed us. And, you know, David Bonson's someone who really is, uh, you know, he's on Fox News and he's on MSNBC, stuff like that. Uh, he's someone who's influencing uh, sort of elite opinion and so forth. Um, and then there are churches that are trying to be faithful in economically depressed areas. And, um, I think we do, we do both of those things and we don't just sort of have one model. So one of the big things, I guess, in my research was, um, you know, just how situational the way we apply the faith will be. I mean, you know, a Christian in Afghanistan a month ago is going to apply their public theology differently today than a month ago not to even get into how we in America will apply our faith publicly than our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan now. And so I, I would want to be nimble to all of those sort of things as well, such that, uh, someone, uh, wouldn't say, well, I'm going to avoid these institutions or I'm just going to try to reach, uh, the, you know, the elite in New York or whatever, but we're just going to be faithful, um, to the place that God plants us.
5: Yeah the Lord seemed to give me a ministry and actually it was um, a lot of quite a bit of Jim Jordan's thinking that was behind this uh, with the leadership of Boulder, which has included city managers, uh, uh, university presidents, uh, police chiefs, fire chiefs, uh, that, that sort of people in those sort of positions and what, well, and I became a chaplain and actually a pastor to some of these a number some of these people, and we actually even had some conversions. But my discovery was, yeah, these people are really powerful, aren't they? Well, actually, when you get to know them, <laughs> they're very insecure, um, and they're they they are very aware of their limitations and the fact that they're possibilities of movement are very limited. Uh, They are essentially, decisions they make are more or less determined, and they have to make those decisions. Somebody comes along and, uh, with some sense of that. Actually, the thing that got me into more places than any single thing was the insight that seven is a number of completion in the Bible, all of the business gurus say that it takes between seven and 10 years to bring real meaningful change to an institution. And the insight that I had was, well, 42 months in the Bible, that's three and a half, that's half of seven. I suspect Jesus was actually literally crucified at 42 months because it fits the typology. Mm. And I would tell I would tell leaders this I remember telling it was a university president first time I met this person um, about this that look what's gonna happen is the first year you're here you're the heroine you've been brought in to solve all the problems the second year gets a little um, tighter and the third year people are looking for someone to scapegoat and blame And somewhere between the third and the fourth year, they will attempt to crucify you. Well, in fact, by golly, that's exactly what happened. And I got a phone call from the chief of staff wanting to know if I could, could you get in to see so-and-so? And Um, and I knew what was happening. It was all front-page news. There was a scandal that they decided to blame on this person. And, of course, that person just sat in their office and they planned the whole thing, of course. Well, of course, that isn't at all what happened. What happened is that you have all of this anxiety in the institution. And when somebody starts to bring change, nobody really wants change in spite of the fact that they say that. And um, when you get to somewhere between three and four years, you're looking for someone to kill. and. Um, I discovered that university presidents nationwide hardly ever make it more than five years. That's why. And they all play musical chairs, get up and just change places. Mm. Well, that insight has made me a lot of friends (laughs) in these places because they really are not powerful people. And they actually know that whatever the public persona is. And they're very grateful for someone they can be honest with. I've had some of these people, one person said, you're, you're the only person I can really be fully honest with because you're the only non-politicized relationship I have. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, that's been a discovery that I've made that the elite are actually, uh, they're, they break pretty easily and they're not, they're not in a powerful position at all.
1: I think one of the things that I'm taking from that rich is, um, you know, the different level of elites. So, um, Dustin's talking about kind of neighborhood level ministry. There are certain kinds of elites in every neighborhood. There are people who are prominent in, in a town. It may be a small town, but there's still a kind of hierarchy that's existing there, or you put it in the city, in a city level. So that, you know, uh, uh, yeah, th- I guess I'm just re- uh, uh, reinforcing Dustin's comment that uh, you're not we're not looking at two in- we're not looking at incompatible kind of tactics mm-hmm. um, because there are uh, there are elites at uh, elites at every level, and I guess the other thing is uh, Rich's point is interesting that you know you, you talk about ministry to the least of these you don't you don't usually include the mayor among mm. them, but it may be that the mayor is the most needy person that you know.
2: Yeah.
5: Yeah, that's that's right. It is. Um, they all have Achilles' heels, and they're they are all exceedingly aware. It's a very dangerous thing to be in public life. Hmm. You're you're liable to uh, skin a lot of knees.
1: Dustin, I was wondering how much of your research was uh, dealing with like case studies of uh, churches that had engaged in in this kind of community level ministry. Uh, how they went about it, what they accomplished um, and any good, any good examples of what you're talking about that you came across.
2: Yeah. You know, I don't really include uh, specific case studies, but I will just say from our ministry here in Dallas, um, we are an urban uh, downtown church and we moved from uh, kind of a, a wealthy neighborhood just North of downtown to being uh, right downtown. And as we did that, Uh, One of the things our uh, rector, Philip did that in retrospect uh, was so wise was he invited stakeholders of the community to come and tell us how we could be a good neighbor before we came. And what was fascinating to me is um, how many people said, you're right downtown. Um, Our building had had been sort of uh, empty for a long time. The homeless very much congregated around it. And of course, we want to minister to the homeless community. Um, What was told to us was, you know, if you come and uh, you just, you know, a lot of churches from North Dallas, kind of wealthy folks will come and they'll uh, put down their truck bed and they'll hand out bottles of water or sleeping bags, things like that. And then they'll go back to the suburbs. And when they go back to the suburbs, a lot of these homeless folks uh, become prey with this new sleeping bag. They said, we have an institutional network here such that there's not one homeless person in Dallas who has to sleep uh, on the street. In other words, there, there are beds enough, there's food enough, there's, there's water enough. Um, what's needed is sort of deep, structural, institutional aid and help that we can offer so what we've tried to do is be a good partner with those signs of order, those people of peace. Um, some of the, the folks we consulted with weren't Christian, um, but they were about feeding the needy and the homeless. Uh, to me, that sort of humble posture is, is important uh, to get to know a place. Uh, we've been here a couple of years, and I feel like we are getting to know the place better and better each day. And as we're doing that, we are taking more proactive steps to, as we've seen what order is there and, and partnered with others, um, to, uh, to start a real ministry to the city in our own right, uh, now that we feel like we have a, a right to speak into the city more and more. And to Rich's point, which I thought was so well said, um, you know, some of the poorest people you'll, you're, you'll meet are really wealthy. Uh, we're right across from City Hall. Um, there are times where I'll spend an afternoon with uh, a homeless person and then I'll talk with a lawyer going into city hall and there really are different sorts of poverty. And, uh, it really was striking as, as Rich was saying that, uh, having said that there are so many great examples, all of your ministries, everybody who's I'm talking with now are examples of, I think, micro Christendoms, um, change happens at this sort of a local level. And there are, are myriad examples of churches who, um, who don't just apply scripture to here's how the church should be organized, but really do apply scripture to the whole of life.
1: It sounds like one of the, one of the things you might be playing off of is uh, the Rod Drager's Benedict option. Is that something that you dealt with at all in your work?
2: Yeah. And that, as I've had opportunities uh, to speak on, on this theme, that's kind of the main thing people will ask is uh, what's the difference between what you're arguing for and, and what Rod is. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I think uh, the way I've seen the Benedict option be applied. And if this is the way people think of the Benedict option, I'm all for it, which is, you know, if you're in a city and the schools are having like, you know, trend, transgender story hour or whatever that was, um, at the local school, you don't need to send your kids in under the banner of being missional to be indoctrinated with this sort of spirit of Antichrist. Um, you can actually start a, a co-op of homeschoolers or a Christian school or something like that. Um, if that is the Benedict option, sort of the diagnoses that in our current moment, we are not formed enough and we don't, we, our people aren't formed enough to go sort of just be sent into the lion's den, they will be devoured. Our kids will be devoured, and we can't offer our kids at the altar of uh, being a good witness. I totally agree with that. Um, if, on the other hand, the Benedict option means something like rather than having a transformative public project, we're just going to focus on the church and building of the church. I guess the problem is, um, again, I I don't know how when I come to passages of scripture about how to treat your employees, I don't know how to just apply that to the church. I mean, I guess I could say something like, you know, the church employs some janitorial staff or a nursery worker or something like that. Here's how we treat them. But the way I'm going to show that text applicability has to do with the Monday to Friday, just kind of typical work a day. Of people, right? And so as I'm applying that, it really is Jesus claiming lordship over the whole of people's lives. And so I don't know, while I can see some like wisdom saying, okay, we're not going to engage in this institution under sort of almost just war three, right? We don't have, uh, there's not actually a prospect for us to transform this school because it's just so far gone. So we're going to start something different. I'm all for that. What I'm not for, I guess, is just saying, okay, for a season, we are just going to be church people and the rest of your life is going to be off limits for the rule of Christ because there's no hope of transformation. I think what I would say is, it may very well be that Washington DC is beyond the pale right now. I don't know. Revivals are pretty spontaneous things and the spirit does what the spirit does. But what I do know is that there can be a public witness. And so, um, and I've had really friendly exchanges with Roger in the past, and I don't know that he would disagree with any of this, but what I would say to someone really captured by that Benedict vision, uh, Benedict option vision, is you can still have a public theology and need a public theology, uh, even as you're diagnosing the state of America as really post Christian and sort of beyond the pale. There are things you can do on your block that really will be. Transformative and don't require you to offer your children um, at any altar.
1: I mean one one way to uh, respond to the Benedict option is at least in certain versions would be the focus of attention is on the the national global kinds of trends. They look hopeless and therefore you band together into small communities of virtue and try to cultivate virtue in, in, for the next generation. And what you're suggesting is take take the take the focus off of that kind of national global kind of trend and look, look around you and see what's, what's, uh, uh, what, what the church is called to do in that particular place, uh, given the particular needs of, uh, of the place that where the church is.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. In other words, public theology doesn't have to equal the transformation of Washington, DC and Hollywood. And, you know, realistically, for the average person, the way they're going to apply their theology publicly um, isn't going to involve the transformation of D.C. and Hollywood anyways. Some wills, as we said. We, we don't want to say ministry to elites and, and so forth are is a bad thing. But for most people, being discipled in sort of a public theology um, is going to involve... Uh, their shopping. <laughs> it's going to involve uh, the way they interact with their boss and uh, how they get to work, where they live. I mean, these are very common things that we really can't opt out of for any season of our life.
4: When we're talking about community in the current context, it seems to me that people have conceptions of what community should look like. They have a desire for community and something thick and substantial in forms of in. The form of their society. And people look for this, I think increasingly, for instance, in their businesses. It's one of the reasons, I think, why we're seeing businesses starting to be a lot more aggressive in pushing certain values, often more progressive values, because their employees actually want to feel that they're a part of something that has a moral force to it. I think likewise with many churches, the idea of a church that almost astroturfs a community where there is no grassroots community present um, to people's conception. They've moved into an area, they can plug into this community and they can act as community consumers. I was thinking a lot of what you're talking about seems to require not just the vision of the pastors and the leaders of the church, but a retooling of the imagination of every member of a congregation and people more generally, how would you go about that process of shaping people's imagination of what community should or can look like and the ways in which they involve or are connected with their communities?
2: Yeah, again, great question. I I think what I would do is, you know, we live in an environment, I mean, you talk about sort of the virtue signaling of businesses they really are calling people to care for humanity. You know, it's, I'm always struck by like in superhero movies, the villains care for humanity. They want to transform humanity and the heroes care for humans. I think what I would do, you come to a passage like, uh, you know, Peter, uh, offline said, you know, some of my, my argument here is a bit pragmatic. Like what's the biblical case for attending to one's neighborhood above and beyond one's, one's nation. If I come to a passage, uh, like first Timothy, I don't have the verse off the top of my head, but I think it's in five or six where. Paul says, one who doesn't care for his family is worse than an unbeliever. So if you think about that, the person you, you pass on the street, they're asking you for money. Earlier I just said we had people advise us as we moved downtown, don't just hand out money or hamburgers or whatever. Um, we, you could be justified passing a poor person on the street and not giving them money. I don't think it's a sin every time you do that. Now if you pass by your mother, and she's begging you for food, it would be a sin, uh, I, I think. Uh, and, and so as you apply these, these passages, again, of the Good Samaritan, uh, just caring. I mean, it, what you do is you turn people from sort of an astroturf, as you say, view of, of activism, which says, well, we're trying to transform humanity, or we care for these abstractions. And you say, you know, you're going to be held accountable Actually, not like what we mentioned Afghanistan earlier. I mean, my heart just bleeds for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. And on Judgment Day, um, I don't think I'm going to be held culpable or responsible for, um, for the things happening across the world that practically I just really can't change. But I do think I'll be held accountable for how well I attended to my neighbors. You know, I have a neighbor right now who's divorced, very lonely. Um, my uh, uh, involvement with him as, as a friend and trying to be a pastor to him, I mean, I think on Judgment Day, that's what I'm going to be held accountable to. So as I'm preaching, I'm just calling people to really attend to their minutes and their hours and their days and their places, and not just sort of have big, grandiose goals of what God is going to do in history, but what you're going to do this afternoon How are you going to keep Sabbath well um, and be a witness to your neighbors? So, I think that's what I would do. I mean, you know, it's so easy. People go to seminary, feel called to ministry, you go to seminary. All the sermons you hear in seminary uh, are these visiting people, and they have nothing to do with the city that the seminarians are living in. And oftentimes, the seminarians know I'm going to be gone in two years, anyways. And so they're not really invested in their place. And all of the sermons they hear are these sort of conference-like sermons with these applications that are very broad towards evangelicalism or Christianity or the church. And I do think my project really involves a revival of knowing how to apply scripture to real people on a human scale. That is, uh, as you're preaching, you aren't just saying the church needs to do X, Y, and Z. But here's how you can live this out this afternoon with the people with whom uh, you come in contact.
1: Dustin Messer, thanks so much for joining us uh, for the Theopolis podcast today. We really really appreciate your work and uh, sharing some of it with us. Uh, I should mention that uh, Dustin is working on a popular shorter version of his dissertation. Uh, It'll be one of the early volumes in our new Theopolis Explorations series that we're hoping to start uh, later this year or early next year. So, be looking for that. Uh, Don't know what the title will be yet, but uh, uh, you've got a little flavor of it and uh, look forward to the book. Uh, Thanks again, Dustin, and uh, also to Alistair, Rich, and Jeff for joining us today.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.